0: In 2019, I decided to put aside the novels I'd been writing for the past 20 years in order to write a book that I never wanted to write on a subject I despise. I had been haunted since I was a teenager by a brief and explosive confrontation I once had with a Holocaust survivor. And after 25 years, five novels, a PhD in Yiddish, and a dose of recent reality, I finally understood why. I'm Dara Horn, and this is Adventures with Dead Jews. When I was 16 years old, in 1993, one of the many now defunct teen magazines gave me a plum assignment to go to Washington DC and write about the newly opened United States Holocaust Memorial Museum.
1: As we have seen already today, this museum is not for the dead alone nor even for the survivors who have been so beautifully represented. It is perhaps most of all for those of us who were not there at all to learn the lessons, to deepen our memories and our humanity, and to transmit these lessons
0: from generation to generation. The museum's opening was a grand event covered in the national media.
1: More than 10 years in the making, built by private funds on federal land, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum has just opened to the public.
0: And the American Jewish community was very thrilled about it. It's an incredible tribute, okay? They've done it incredibly well. This place just makes you
1: become the history that it, that it portrays.
0: The opening of this massive museum just off the National Mall felt like a sort of debutante party a monumental symbolic moment of a broad American acceptance and respect for the Jewish experience. The fact that this supposedly Jewish museum was devoted to describing how Jews were murdered was disturbing if you really thought about it. But back then, it actually felt kind of hopeful. The belief was that people would go to this museum and see where hating Jews could lead. And then, obviously, they would stop hating Jews. I wrote a rave review of that new Holocaust museum, which the teen magazine published between a list of makeup tips and an article about bulimia. In my review, I spent a lot of time praising the museum's children's section, an exhibit called Daniel's Story. The exhibit tells the story of an imaginary child named Daniel, and museum visitors walk through different places from Daniel's life. First, you enter a mock-up of Daniel's house in Frankfurt, Germany, which looks a lot like a house in any American suburb. We lived in a house with a yard, and I had my own bedroom. Those were happy times for me and my friends. You see Daniel's soccer cleats and his soccer ball on a shelf in his room, next to his globe and his camera. Daniel's dad was a war veteran, so you see his dad's army medals too. Just past the cookies in Daniel's kitchen and the teddy bear on Daniel's bed, you move on to a street full of vandalized storefronts and signs that say, no Jews allowed. In the next room, you're in a ghetto where Daniel's fancy house has been replaced with a small and shabby room. We were trapped. There were rules about everything. My family lived together in one small room. We thought it couldn't get worse than the ghetto, but it did. And by the next room, you're at Auschwitz. But this is a kid's exhibit, so it stops at the barbed wire. At the end, you're encouraged to write a note to the imaginary Daniel telling him what you've learned. As a recent child myself, I found all this quite moving. And in 1993, I still believed in the power of dead Jews to protect living ones, a belief that's actually rooted in the theology of Judaism itself. I was convinced that writing about this exhibit would help people recognize the Jews' humanity, just like the museum itself would. I couldn't imagine anything objectionable about this. So I was shocked when a random Holocaust survivor attacked me for it. When I returned from Washington, My parents took me to see some friends of theirs, and everyone was eager to hear about the brand new museum that they'd only seen on TV. I gave them my rave review, especially of the children's exhibit. One of the other guests was an older woman who I didn't know. Like many old Jews back then, she had a heavy accent and a bunch of numbers on her arm. She glared at me until I stopped talking. Then she said, a kid on a soccer team is not what died in the Holocaust. Then she started ranting about Yiddish-speaking culture, about books and theaters and yeshivas and newspapers and Hasidic dynasties and political parties and youth groups and musicians and artists and writers I'd never heard of. She shrieked at me about how I had to tell my teenage readers about what was really lost. Why, she demanded, did the museum have a soccer-playing German-speaking kid as its emblem of the children who were murdered in the Holocaust when 85% of Holocaust victims were Yiddish speakers and a huge percentage were religious Jews? Instead of soccer cleats, why didn't the boy's bedroom shelves have his volumes of the Talmud? Or his scouting uniform from his socialist youth club? Or his Hebrew songbooks from the Zionist group Hashomer Hatzair? Instead of his dad's army medals, why not dad's tefillin? Or dad's Yiddish newspapers? Or his tickets to the Yiddish theater? Was there even a mezuzah on the door of Daniel's imaginary house? I recently checked. There isn't. The woman kept ranting at me, but I was 16 and I had no patience for cranky old people. Instead of listening, I politely told this Holocaust survivor that she was completely wrong. What mattered most in a museum like this, I patiently explained, was that regular American children could relate to it. The whole point was to teach American kids that kids who died in the Holocaust were just like them. Then the woman shouted at me, but what if they weren't just like them? Would it have been okay to murder them if they weren't just like them? That old woman's question made me so uncomfortable that I avoided it for 25 years. I'm now a novelist and a scholar of Hebrew and Yiddish literature. And in my work, I've made a conscious choice not to focus on dead and murdered Jews. For me, Jewish identity has never been about what other people did to the Jews, but about a deep attunement to Torah and timelessness, something that has been at the center of my life since I became a weekly Torah reader at the age of 12. When I started writing novels about Jewish life in my early 20s, my goal was to build a living Jewish culture that any reader could access, one where Jews wrestled with their traditions, but where they always lived their lives on their own terms. And when I did my doctorate in Yiddish literature, I finally read the mind-expanding works of all those world-class luminaries that that old woman was ranting about, and I finally understood what was lost. I've always written nonfiction, too, essays and reviews and feature pieces, usually when various editors ask me to do it. But in the past few years, I've started to notice that these editors keep asking me to write about dead Jews. And that's when that old woman's question came back into my life. In 2018, Smithsonian Magazine asked me to write an article about the world's second favorite dead Jew, Anne Frank. I really didn't want to write about Anne Frank, though I hadn't yet figured out why. Then I remembered a news item that I'd seen about the Anne Frank House. The blockbuster Amsterdam museum that contains the tiny secret rooms where Anne Frank and her family hid from the Nazis. The news item was about a young Jewish employee at the Anne Frank house who tried to wear his yarmulke to work. His employers didn't like it, so they made him hide his yarmulke under a baseball cap. He appealed to the museum's board, which deliberated for four months before they finally relented and let him wear his yarmulke to work. To me, four months seemed like a rather long time for the Anne Frank House to ponder whether it was a good idea to force a Jew into hiding. I hoped this was just a PR mistake, but then I discovered another news item from the previous year when visitors to the Anne Frank House noticed something odd about the audio guide display. Each audio guide language was represented with a national flag a British flag next to the word English, a French flag for French, and so on, until you got to Hebrew. For Hebrew, no flag. That particular omission, which the museum eventually fixed, would surely have bothered one former resident of the Anne Frank House, Anne Frank's older sister, Margot, who died in Bergen-Belsen two days before her famous sister. Margot was active in a Dutch Zionist youth organization, and she planned to move to Palestine and become a midwife in the Galilee. Before going into hiding, she had been studying Hebrew to prepare for her life in a future Jewish state, a state which now has its own flag. But the museum didn't want to offend any visitors who had come to learn about the Jews' humanity. The most famous line from Anne Frank's diary is, I still believe in spite of everything, that people are truly good at heart. That's the line that publishers and museum curators have plastered onto book jackets and painted onto walls, the line that inspires us, by which we mean it flatters us. It suggests that a murdered Jew has offered us absolution from guilt, delivering a kind of Christian grace. But the truth is much simpler. Anne Frank wrote that line about people being truly good at heart before she met people who weren't. Three weeks after writing that line, she was deported to Auschwitz. And then she met people who weren't. But that reality, and the reality of living Jews, was beside the point. The point of the museum was to teach people about the Jews' humanity. The humanity of the nice Jews, that is. The dead ones who spoke non-Jewish languages and played on the soccer team, not the living ones doing yucky things like living in Israel or practicing Judaism. At that point, I realized what should have been obvious all along. People love dead Jews. Living Jews, not so much. As I thought about how these museums erased the Jewish identities of these dead and persecuted Jews, I wondered if this problem was actually unavoidable. Wouldn't any attempt to present the Holocaust to a non-Jewish audience do the same thing? In other words, when I told that cranky old lady that the only way to make dead Jews matter to the public was to erase their Jewish identity, wasn't I right? Actually, no. And one of the very first attempts at public Holocaust education took exactly the opposite approach. In the 1940s, the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York City created a radio program called The Eternal Light, which was broadcast nationally by NBC as part of their Sunday morning religious programming.
1: And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring unto thee...
0: The Eternal Light is a little corny by today's standards. Okay, maybe a lot corny. But by today's standards, it's also almost shocking because it's so unapologetically Jewish. The Eternal Light told stories about King David and Queen Esther, Rabbi Akiva and Moses Maimonides. It had shows about Jews in ancient Babylonia and Jews in colonial America. It dramatized rabbinic stories and modern Hebrew fiction and Yiddish literary works. And starting in 1945, it presented a lot of dramas about the Holocaust and especially about young survivors.
1: Back, they'll kill us. You cannot land, that's my orders. would send these children back to die? I don't want to go back on the ramp.
0: There are episodes about the liberation of Buchenwald, about the Nuremberg Trials, about Jews being murdered after the war in Polish pogroms, about survivors dying by suicide, and loads of tearjerker stories about orphaned and traumatized Jewish children. I understand, Chaplain.
1: Here we are not admitted. And in Poland, once again, there are pogroms. I want
0: to stay here.
1: cried for three hours.
0: But to me, what's most remarkable about these episodes is how aggressively Jewish they are.
1: As said Jeremiah at the door of the king of Judah, Woe unto him that buildeth his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice.
0: Of course, the Eternal Light had its own agenda. Many of these episodes ended with appeals to the audience to help survivors. And as part of NBC's religious programming that stayed on the air well into the 1960s, the show also gave American Jews a place alongside Protestants and Catholics in the Cold War fight against the godless Soviets. But what's so astonishing today is how this nationally broadcast show did not hesitate to present its Jewish characters as Jews, and especially its Jewish children. One typical episode is The Voice of Rachel, which aired on December 30th, 1945. Like Daniel's story at the Holocaust Museum, it's about a child survivor from a Western European country in this case, an eight-year-old boy from France. But if this kid was on the soccer team, we are not hearing about it. When he arrives in New York with other Jewish orphans, he claims to remember nothing about his pre-war life. We
1: had 132 children at the shelter. He was like all the others. And yet, Bernard was also a part. What is your second name? Finisipa. What was your mother's second name? Finisipa. Miller, you try him. Where did you live? ne sais Don't you even remember the town or the province? ne sais Miller, how are we going to help the boy? We've got nothing to go on. Just three things. His mother's name was Rochelle. His name is Bernard. And somewhere in America, he has an uncle. His mother's brother. That isn't enough. We're licked. Now, let's see if you can make him talk. Bernard, listen. We want to help you find your uncle.
0: Then one day, he starts singing a song that his dead mother taught him, which helps unite him with an American uncle.
1: Bernard, I never heard that melody before. Oh, that's a nice tune, Bernard. Is that something your mother taught you? Come here, Bernard. Okay. That's the fine American vocabulary you're acquiring. Okay. Uh, Don't overdo it now. Does your song have words?
0: The story is fiction, so that song could have been anything. The show could have used a sentimental cabaret song or a French lullaby. But instead, the boy sings Hebrew words from the prophet Jeremiah. Kol nehi Rachel al-baneha. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing, bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children, for they are gone. That's how the prophet Jeremiah described the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 586 BCE, when the Jewish captives, being led to Babylonia, passed the grave of the matriarch Rachel, who had died centuries earlier. Jeremiah imagined Mother Rachel wailing for those future generations of Jews, her children, as they passed her grave on their way into exile. Those who know that text will know the verses that follow that one. Restrain your voice from weeping, your eyes from shedding tears. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children shall return to their borders. In the eternal light, the Holocaust isn't an unprecedented event that people try to make relatable. Instead, it's the near end of a 3,000-year-old chain, a contact point in the covenant with God, part of a long double helix of loss and renewal. This boy is singing a Hebrew prophecy, an ancient Jewish lament and a call to national Jewish resilience. On NBC, he did not need to be on the soccer team for people to listen. In the end, I did wind up writing for Smithsonian Magazine about Anne Frank. I wrote everything that I didn't write for that teen magazine years ago. I told readers about the museum's absurdities, and I told them what was really lost. The piece came out just days before the massacre at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. Within hours of that attack, editors again started asking me to write about dead Jews. And then it happened again and again. These editors, expected me to respond to contemporary anti-Semitic attacks by saying something sad and beautiful and inspired. You know, just like Anne Frank did. But I wasn't feeling sad and beautiful and inspired. I was feeling enraged. Not just because my community had been lethally attacked, but because I had had the sudden and infuriating realization that I had been conned. As I fielded more and more requests to write about dead Jews, I came to understand that there was a certain gaslighting going on about the Jewish past and that I was expected to participate in it. I began to see that there was something exploitative, almost perverse, about the insatiable public appetite for stories about dead Jews and the way those stories often invalidated or erased the Jewish present. So I finally gave in. Instead of avoiding this sickening topic, as I had diligently done for the past 20 years, I decided to dive directly into it, to investigate the role that dead Jews play in a non-Jewish world. To learn more about exactly why people love dead Jews so much, you'll have to read my book, which is called, People Love Dead Jews. In this series though, we're going to do something a little different because as I've discovered, the world's love for dead Jews is far too vast for one book to contain. Here, we're going to explore more behind the scenes stories that don't appear in my book, in part because they were almost too weird to be believable. I'm going to take you to Moscow and Cairo and New Orleans and Tokyo on our quest to discover what dead Jews mean to the world. We'll probe the connections between a blockbuster Holocaust movie and a blockbuster dinosaur movie, between an online archive and a medieval document dump, between traditional Jewish ritual and Civil War reenactment, and between insane conspiracy theories and actual government policies. We'll meet rabbis and military officers and genius identical twins and murdered Yiddish actors and a podiatrist on the make, We'll see how dead Jews are discarded and resurrected and how living Jews have navigated this warped reality. Through it all, we'll return to that old woman's haunting question. What if dead Jews weren't just like everyone else? In Adventures with Dead Jews, we'll uncover some answers. I hope you'll find it all as disturbing as I do. Adventures with Dead Jews is brought to you by Tablet Studios and Soul Shop. It's created and written by me, Dara Horn, and produced and edited by Josh Cross and Robert Scaramuccia. The managing producer is Sara Fredman-Ader, and the executive producers are Liel Leibovitz, Stephanie Butnick, Gabby Weinberg, and Dan Luxenberg. We hope you'll rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts so that more people can join us on our adventures. My new book, People Love Dead Jews, is published by WW Norton and is available wherever books are sold. It's also available as an audiobook from Recorded Books. I hope you'll check it out. You can check out the show notes for more information about topics from today's show. Next week, we'll be exploring the bizarre story of how the Empire of Japan once tried to create a Jewish state. I'm Dara Horn, and I'll see you then for more Adventures with Dead Jews.